Sorry about that. that all right um so you're an echo yes you're that okay maybe it's not too yeah it's okay all right so we are in the second sermon of june and the title of my sermon today is evil in the hands of a good god and so the question that i think a lot of us are wondering in the joseph series which we've gone through again and again is how can God be good when there is evil? If God is all-powerful, couldn't he stop COVID-19? Can't he stop something like the Holocaust? Can't he stop 9-11? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he stop these things? And in the story of Joseph, it's the same thing. If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just magically transport Joseph back to uh, his family, back with Jacob? And it's a question we ask, if God is all-powerful, but he chooses not to stop an evil, then he he must not be all good. I have a very short exercise I want to try today. I'm going to show something, uh, and I want want you to tell me what it's made out of. It's like a repurposed um, new creation, all right? Let's uh, see how this goes. What do you guys think that is made out of? Say it again. Someone said it, right? <laughs> yeah, water bottles. Yes, you can't really tell that well because this resolution's not that good, but it's a repurposed water bottle turned to a lamp. Okay, next one. You guys know what that is? It's a pot, but it's made out of something else. Yeah. Glass? No, not glass. What do you think it's made out of or made from, the original item? If it helps, you can look at it upside down, like, like that. Yeah, it's a helmet. It's a World War II helmet, and someone repurposed it to be a, uh, a strainer or a pot for cooking. All right, yeah, pretty cool. This is an easy one. What is that? Yes. Skis. Okay. Very good. Okay. Uh, I don't know how comfortable that would be, but... There you have it. All right, last one. What do you guys think this is? This is probably be really hard because there's no really clue, but any guesses? Hey, Daniel. Bottles? Mm, no. Any more guesses? Plastic? No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, glass shards? It is that, but... Um, it's kind of unfair. There's no really clue to help you, but uh, this is from an organization called Nozomi Project. Uh, one of our church members, actually, Karina Kenmatsu, she did speaker's tournament or coach speaker's tournament. She's a missionary in Japan, and she works with this organization. And these uh, jewelry, it's made from uh, broken pottery from the 2011 tsunami in, in Japan. So what they do is they recover um, old pottery, and they uh, train and equip people. I think it's a woman to uh, re, uh, reshape and repurpose broken pottery for something beautiful, just like this. And uh, you can check out the website uh, if you're interested in more. But I think it's a really beautiful picture, in a sense, of good coming out of evil. And so 
Uh, this is a really small exercise, but I think when we think about evil in this world, a lot of times we think, how can there be any good that comes out of evil? But as we see in everyday life, sometimes there can be good repurposed out of evil, and I think we see that crystal clear today in today's passage. So here's the sermon preview that we're going to go through. It's how it is each week. We're going to explain the biblical narrative, <laughs> and then afterwards we're going to draw out the theological insight. Um, and so if you remember last week, so this is a recap picture of last week. I know it's a little distracting, but just uh, last week Judah emerges as the leader of his brothers. Remember Judah, he's the fourth son of Jacob. Reuben is the first son. He should be the leader. But he convinces his dad to let Benjamin uh, go back to Egypt, and Joseph creates a test. He wants to see if his brothers have really changed, and so he does things to favor Benjamin, like he gives him uh, five times the portion, and he slips a silver cup in his sack of grain, and he basically frames Benjamin. And so basically the steward who uh, catches up to the brothers basically says the, the man whose uh, sack has the silver cup, that person will be a servant in the house of Joseph forever. And so uh, the brothers, we left off last week, they are uh, returning back to the house of Joseph. And this is really the climax of the Joseph story and really the entire book of Genesis. So if there was any week to show up, this week was it. So if you do have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 44. And that's where we'll pick up. Genesis chapter 44. Give you guys a moment to get there. Genesis chapter 44. All right, we're going to start midway in the chapter, 44 verses 14, and we're going to go to verse 17. All right, here's what Genesis chapter 44, verses 14 to 17. We'll start off there. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Let's stop there. So maybe we didn't uh, catch it the first time, but in verse 14, I don't know if you caught it, but the first phrase says, when Judah and his brothers. It's a very subtle shift, but what the author, which is Moses, he's trying to portray Judah, who is now the leader of the brothers. That's right, this is the same Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, who has a history, a stained history. He's the one who suggested selling Joseph, like, hey, let's not kill Joseph, let's just sell him to the uh, Egyptians, the Ishmaelites, and this is the same Judah who hired his own daughter-in-law as a prostitute. Unknowingly, he didn't know that, but it just shows how wicked he is. And so for the author to say, 
Judah and his brothers, it would really catch the readers off guard. It would be like, if you're watching an Avengers movie, it'd be like saying, Loki and the Avengers. It's like, wait, that's not the hero. It should be Tony Stark. It should be, um, uh, it should be um, Captain America. Why is Loki like the forefront of that? And so when we read this, if you're the original audience, you would still be like, what? Judah? That guy? But here we see, um, beginning from last week, a different type of Judah. And so when the brothers return to the house and they see Joseph, Joseph says to them, don't you know I practice divination? And remember what last week we said, it just basically means interpreting the waters in a cup to predict the future. Uh, in this moment, we think um, Joseph is bluffing. He doesn't really practice divination to Egyptian gods. It's just his way of intimidating uh, Joseph or in intimidating Judah. And so Judah says, what can we do? How can we justify ourselves? And of course, we know that Judah and his brothers, they didn't uh, steal the cup. But for some reason, Judah says in verses, um, in verses 16, he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. So for some reason, Judah is, is admitting guilt. But what guilt is that? It's not stealing the cup. That was the steward who planted the cup in uh, the sack of, of Benjamin. What Judah might be admitting guilt to is how his brothers has mis have mistreated Joseph in the past. Perhaps now, as they know that Benjamin will um, stay in the house of Joseph forever, and this will eventually maybe lead to the death of Jacob if his, if his son doesn't come back, this might be punishment for all the years as they mistreated uh, Joseph. And so Jacob, or Judah, he tries to say, you know what, we all did it. Just take all of us in as servants. But Joseph says, nope, I'm not punishing all you guys. I'm only punishing the one who had the silver cup. And Joseph, he knows what he's doing. This is a test. He wants to see once and for all where his brothers uh, really are. What are their true colors? And what comes next is the longest speech in Genesis. What comes next is meant to be the climax of the book of Genesis. When Judah and Joseph come face to face and Judah pleads his case. So I want to read this in its entirety because it's the climax, uh, it's the top of the hill, so to speak, of the plot in Genesis and in this Joseph story. So let me read it from verses 18 to 34. It's a little bit longer, so I just want to read it in its entirety so we get the full um, impact of it. So Genesis 44, verses 18 to 34. This is what Judah says when he realizes Benjamin will have to stay here forever. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father, a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone, meaning Benjamin, is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Verse 21, then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set his, my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my, shall not see my face again. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, 
then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servants, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father all of my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So let's stop there. That was a long passage, but this is the climax of Genesis when Judah pleads for the life of his baby brother, Benjamin. And he does two things in this speech. The first thing he does is he demonstrates that he's a loving son to Jacob. He carefully explains the gravity of the family situation. He says, he references his father 14 times in this, pas in this passage. And he basically says, any harm that goes against Benjamin will also threaten the life of his dad, who is innocent. And he knows that, uh, he says to basically Joseph, my dad has two sons with his beloved Rachel. His first son is no more. Um, and, my and my father believed that he was torn to pieces. If you take Benjamin also, you also take my father's life. And for the first time, you have to imagine, Joseph for the first time never knew how his dad responded when he found out he, he died or his body was missing. For the first time, Joseph realizes this is how my dad responded, that he was torn to pieces. And Judah basically pleads with him, if you take Benjamin, my dad dies. And I think in that moment, if you're there in that moment, we have to picture that Joseph's heart, something in there softened. Maybe in that moment, Joseph, he's reminded, and, he, and he's recalling his relationship with his own dad, which is the dad that um, Judah's talking about. He's thinking, this isn't, just, this isn't just Judah's dad, that's my dad as well. And maybe he, he remembers the childhood memories of how his dad was so good to him, how he was a good dad and gave him good gifts, like a coat of many colors, and always showed affection. Maybe in that moment, Joseph's heart was touched. But it doesn't just stop there. Judah just doesn't demonstrate that he's a loving son to his dad, Jacob. The second thing that he demonstrates is that he's a loving brother to Benjamin. Because in that moment, Judah also offers his own life in the place of Benjamin. If you look at verse 33, which is towards the end of the speech, Verse 33 begins with, now therefore. And that therefore basically summarizes the entire family situation. And he says, my Lord, take my life. I will be your servant. Just let Benjamin go. This is all I ask. And this is what basically Joseph is asking. And in this moment, Joseph's heart, it breaks open. Because he sees in a sense that Judah 
has passed the test. Judah is no longer that bully that Joseph knew back then. Judah is now the loving brother, something that Joseph never experienced. He never had the experience of a loving brother growing up. But now he sees the way Judah cares for his little brother and cares for his dad. Despite Benjamin being the son of Rachel, who received a special status. And so in this moment, we see the high points of Judah's morality. Judah, the man who suggested to um, sell, sell Joseph, now he's the one who's offering his own life. Back then, he sold Joseph into slavery, but now he's offering to be a slave for Joseph. And I have a, got the, I think the slide. Um, this is Judah pleading for his life, or pleading for Benjamin's life. And you can see Joseph, his face is getting ready to burst. He can't hold in the emotion. He wishes, why couldn't Judah be like this when, when I was younger? And he makes a, a pledge of safety for, for Judah. And remember, last week we talked about when's the last time Judah made a pledge? The last time he made a pledge was when he was guaranteeing payments uh, with a prostitute, which was Tamar, his daughter-in-law. But now his pledge is for Benjamin. Now his pledge is to protect the life of another, not to assault or take advantage of another person. This Judah is changing. And so this is a very night and day shift. And because of that, Joseph cannot contain himself. If you can imagine like a dam holding back a lake of water, and imagine that dam just burst and the lake just um, gushes forth with water, this is in a sense what is happening with Joseph's emotions. And what happens next is arguably one of the most emotional moments in the Old Testament when Joseph reveals who he is. So let's look at the next chapter, uh, chapter 45 of Genesis. Let's look at verses 1 to 3, and let's see how Joseph uh, responds. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept out loud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. This next slide, a small depiction of Joseph, that he reveals himself, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? This is one of the most dramatic moments in the Old Testament. Joseph, upon hearing the tender yet passionate speech of his brother Judah, rotten Judah back then, Joseph reveals himself. And he tells the Egyptians to get out because he wants to reveal himself to his brothers. And imagine you're in that room when that happens. You could hear a pin drop if you were there. You could see their jaws drop. They're probably speechless. You can imagine the brothers saying, my Lord, could you repeat that again? I don't know if you, if I heard what I thought you heard. Are you, I'm afraid you're mistaken. Is this a cruel prank? Where are the cameras? Like this, this is not real. And it says that the brothers were dismayed. They were disturbed. This man, this Lord of, this Egyptian Lord, there's no way he could be Joseph this whole time. What kind of game is this? But then maybe he begins to set in and they were disturbed. Maybe they were dismayed because if in fact this is Joseph, 
the second most powerful man in Egypt, right now he has the power to crush his brothers and get vengeance on everything that they've done, for, done against him. So they are terrified right now. And so Joseph begins to explain what he means. And we see that Joseph's faith is entirely in God's perfect plan. So let's look at verses 4 to, four to 8 in Joseph's response. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's stop there. So just as Judah reveals his true colors, Joseph, he now reveals his true colors, his identity, how he ended up second in command of all of Egypt. And Joseph gives all the credit to God. In this speech, he references God four times. And he says, yes, you're the ones who sold me to Egypt, but it was actually God who sent me here. God had a mission for me. He made me a father to Pharaoh. And that's not a literal uh, father, uh, but it basically means that he was so committed to Pharaoh as a special advisor. And after all these years, how long has it been since Joseph was that 17-year-old teenager in Egypt? It's been 22 years. So right now, Joseph is 39 years old. When he was sold into slavery, he was 17 years old. So 22 years have passed. 22 years, and yet after those 22 years, Joseph still places his faith in God. And he says that God sent me here to preserve a remnant. And that word remnant, it kind of describes a surviving residue. So it's like when you wash your dishes, and let's say you don't wash very well, and there's still dirt and grime. That thing, that grime, it's, it's the remnant. And it's uh, the remnant that Joseph uses here is saying that I'm, God sent me to um, preserve the remnant. That the family of Jacob, this famine might have wiped out a lot of people on the earth, but we are preserving. God wants to preserve a remnant of, of the family of Abraham. And this should remind us of something. It, it should remind us of the bigger promise. If you uh, take a step back and you look at the story of Genesis, you know that in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. And so to preserve the family of Jacob, God is keeping his promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And so Joseph at the speech, he's not done yet. He continues uh, because he also wants to see his dad again. So let's look at verses 9 to 15. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Verse 11, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
and now your eyes see, and the eyes of my, Benjamin, of my brother Benjamin see, that is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So let's stop here. Joseph makes a promise. He says, first he reveals his identity, that I am Joseph. Is my dad okay? His dad's okay? And he sends them, hurry and go back. I know my dad is getting old. I want to see him before he dies. And he says, I will take care of, um, of dad, of you, my brothers, of your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, animals, everything. And so he says, tell dad I'm still alive. Tell him to come to Egypt. It's going to be safe for him here. This famine, there's still five years left of the famine. There's no time to lose. Please hurry back as soon as possible. And after he says that, he just um, embraces his brothers. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And so after this reveal, he kisses and weeps and hugs them. These are normal expressions when you are reunited with family. And then in that last sentence of verse 15, it says his brothers talked with him. And of course, this sentence doesn't seem that out of the ordinary, but if you remember chapter 37, when we first meet Joseph, it says that the brothers could not even speak a word to him because they hated him. But now we see a family that's reunited, a family that's complete. And I think that can relate with us because in some sense, we all come from broken families. We all wish we were closer to maybe our parents or our siblings. We can relate with broken families because this is the world we live in. But here for a brief moment, we experience some level reconciliation. And it says that the brothers talked with him. You have to imagine, what do they talk about? And they probably say, like, how do we know you're Joseph? Like, tell us something that only you would know. And maybe you said, well, this is what, what you called me. These were the nicknames you called me when uh, we were growing up. And these are the dreams I had. And remember the day I sold you? Yeah, Judah, you're the one who suggested that. I was there in the pit. Like, I, I was there. I'm Joseph. And Reuben, yeah, I know you're the oldest, but no one really ever listened to you. And so these brothers here are like, oh my gosh, this, this is Joseph. He knows things that only Joseph, a fellow brother, would know. And so this is indeed Joseph. And so after this, words go, word goes out to the rest of Pharaoh's house. Let's look at verses uh, 16 to 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the lands of Egypt is yours. Let's stop there. So even... Pharaoh is happy that Joseph is reunited with his family. And he says, Joseph, your dad and your brothers, they will get the best of Egypt. Um, and we have to remember that Pharaoh, he is in, indebted to Joseph for what he's done. He basically saved the entire country of Egypt from famine. And so Pharaoh is more than happy 
to preserve and help out Joseph's family. And so he jumps at the opportunity to provide um, supplies. And so this is what they do in verses 21 to 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the commands of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they, as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. When I read this passage, I was really confused. I was like, wait, Joseph, the test is over. Why are you, why do you, or why are you still giving stuff to Benjamin more than the rest of the brothers? Like, things are over. Like, what are you doing? And then as he sends them away, he's like, he says to them, oh, make sure you guys don't fight on the way home. And I'm like, why, Joseph? The, the, the test is over. And why does he even give them a change of clothes? Well, remember, they, they tore their robes when they had to go back to Egypt. So they need a new change of clothes. Otherwise, they look weird coming back um, to Canaan to see their family. But why does Joseph continue to favor Benjamin? One commentator says that he notes that the brothers wouldn't be jealous. During the meal, he gave Joseph five portions more. Brothers didn't do anything. In the silver cup uh, scenario, when Benjamin was falsely framed, the brothers jumped to protect him. And so Joseph knows that they will not be envious of Benjamin when he gives them uh, these extra portions. He knows that they won't be jealous as they were of him, of uh, Joseph uh, growing up. And he leaves them one last remark. Don't fight. On the way home, I know you guys are going to blame each other. Like, Judah, you were so mean to Joseph growing up. Like, if you didn't do that, like, Joseph would still be with us. And Reuben, like, come on, you're the oldest son. Like, you could have stopped us. And it would have been really easy for them to argue on the way back. And Joseph simply tells them, don't quarrel. Just remember what's happening now, that our family is being reunited. And so Joseph just wants them, their family, to stay together. And so he just wants to see their dad again. And so let's read the final portion of this passage in verses 25 to 28 when they return to their dad, Jacob. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told them, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart, uh, Jacob's heart, became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And let's stop there for, for today. And so you have to imagine when they all come back with these wagons, with, uh, uh, with Benjamin and Simeon back, and they say, Joseph is alive. To Jacob the father, Joseph has been dead for 22 years. Joseph has been dead. Uh, Jacob saw the bloody robe. He's already made peace with that. And so for, for, for Jacob, it's going to take a while for him to really believe, how can my son Joseph be alive? I held his bloody robe 22 years again. Don't make me relive that memory of my lost son. But they said, no, no, dad, 
Joseph is alive. Look at the things he gave us. He told us things that only Joseph uh, could know. The dreams, the robes of many colors. We even bowed down to him. These things came true. And if you notice something in verse 28, it doesn't say, and Jacob says. The first three words of verse 28 says, and Israel said. That's important because it's hinting that uh, that the nation and family of Abraham is being preserved and protected. Yes, we know the, the word Israel, it can be used as a nation, but can also be used for the name of Jacob. And in that verse, we see a glimpse of hope that the nation of Israel is being preserved. His son, Joseph, is alive. After 22 years, that old 17-year-old uh, teenager with crazy dreams is now Joseph, the 39-year-old ruler of Egypt. This is the God that they worshipped, and this is the God that we worship. So as we stop here, I want us to ask what we always ask each week, which is, so what? What is the big deal? The question I asked at the beginning was, how can God be good when there's so much evil? How can God be good if there's so much evil in my life. So let me uh, just play, or let me just throw out a couple of rhetorical questions. Let's play a little game of what if. What if Judah and his brothers never sell Joseph into slavery? What if Joseph is never a servant in Potiphar's house? What if Joseph is never falsely accused of assault and thrown into prison? What if Joseph never meets the cupbearer and the baker and interprets their dreams? What if a famine never occurs and those families are not reunited? What if Joseph never interprets Pharaoh's dreams? And what if Judah never hires his daughter-in-law as a prostitute? And what if Judah never gives this impassionate speech that demonstrates care for his brother and his dad? What would happen if none of these, these are all a lot of these evil actions, but if none of this happened, the family of Jacob the family of Abraham, would perish. And what would that say about God? It would mean that God failed. If the family of Abraham just was wiped out from the planet, that would mean that God failed and did not keep his promise and did not keep his end of the covenant in Genesis 12. This would make God to be a liar. And as we know that God, if God is a liar, then he's no longer God. But we know that God is not a liar. God does keep his promises. And in today's climactic scene between Joseph and Judah, we see that God repurposes evil to advance his redemptive plan to change hearts and save lives. And that's why I showed the pictures in the beginning of the water bottles and the lamp and the, the skis and the bench and the jewelry and uh, the, Jap the, uh, the tsunami in Japan. And today we shine a light on Judah. Judah, we see the highs and lows of his life. There is so much evil and wickedness in his heart, but God redeems his life, and this melts the heart of Joseph. And if we step back even more and look at the whole story of the Bible, 2,000 years later, after Judah, from the child born through Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar, a descendant shoots forth, a descendant named Jesus Christ, who will 
offer his own life for another. This Jesus who left the perfection of earth or the perfection of heaven to go to earth, who lived a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, because Jesus, the descendant of Judah, offered his own life so that sinners like you and me could be set from the power of sin and death. You see that all throughout scripture, God sees evil and he says, I'm going to use that evil action. I'm going to use that evil purpose, that evil person for my good purpose. It all leads to Jesus offering his own life for his enemies. I want to read from Romans verses five, uh, chapter 5, 7 to 8, which says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In today's story, it makes sense that in a way Judah would die for his brother Benjamin. That's his brother. But how much more love do we see in Jesus who dies for his enemies? And his enemies are you and me, sinners. God used the family, the broken family of Jacob to bring about the Messiah Jesus who would bring salvation for mankind. And it's why we're sitting at FCBC Walnut right now. What happens in the family of Jacob connects with um, the crucifixion 2,000 years later and it connects to another 2,000 years later 2021 right now we are sitting in this room talking about jesus because of things that happen historical events that happen that change history and it's why we declare the good news of the gospel that changes hearts and it saves lives so i want you to think about right now just even this past week think about things that didn't go your way think about some of the frustrations that you had think about the disappointments in your life, the evils in your life. If we truly believe in a God who repurposes evil to change hearts and save lives, then we must believe that God has a higher purpose for the evil in our lives. And last year we went through the book of James. We remember the the words of James in chapter 1, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I think the life of, the life of Joseph is an illustration of this principle. That the principle that, um, that trials can produce steadfastness The life of Joseph, it's an illustration of that. That God uses trials and weakness to form the character of Joseph and Judah and it leads to the the family of Abraham being preserved. So I want you to think about your life and the disappointments. Maybe you ended this year with with a B, God forbid, (laughs) or a C in one of your classes. Maybe you've experienced a death in your family this past year. Maybe you see yourself constantly getting into fights with your family members. And maybe there's a lot of sibling rivalry, much like the story of the family of Joseph. Maybe you had an injury or a health condition this past year that really just turned your life upside down. Maybe you even question the friends that you have right now. The friends I have, COVID changed things. I don't even know if I'm close to some of my friends anymore. I don't even know if I have friends because of COVID and I just feel so isolated. 
Maybe you even question God. And I want us to remember that every evil in our life, every unwanted circumstance, it's God's way of producing endurance in your character and changing your heart. And ultimately, there's a higher purpose to his plan. And so the big idea for today is what man uses for evil to corrupt hearts and destroy lives, God uses for good to change hearts and save lives. And I thought about this passage a lot. This past couple months, preaching through Joseph, this theme comes up a lot. You're probably thinking, well, I've heard this before. You said this in sermon number one. You said this in sermon three and four and five. This is kind of like the same thing. And that's exactly true. That's what the text is communicating today, that whatever evil comes your way, God is doing something behind the scenes, behind that evil. There is a deeper, higher purpose behind that. And this is the God we worship. Because it's sometimes the, the easy, uh, the, the, it's, how should I put it? It's sometimes the common truths in life that we forget. Jesus loves you. Of course we know that. But do you really believe that? When you're alone and you can't sleep and you don't know if you're loved, do you really believe Jesus loves you? You should really ask yourself that because it's the easy truths in life that we know in our head, but we don't believe in our heart. And so I think that's why it's important to know how God uses evil. Because of course we can say, oh, God has a plan. But when your life gets wrecked, do you really believe God has a plan? Do you really believe God is using the evil in your life for his higher purpose? And I think that's, I want that to sit with you beyond just tonight in small group. When you go home and before you go to bed, ask yourself if you don't like your life, if you hate your life right now, I want you to remember God. God is this chief architect who is using the evils in our life to produce something greater, something better. And so next week, we're going to see Joseph and his dad, Jacob, reunited as a result of God's plan to preserve Abraham's family. So this week, as you live your life, I pray for endurance for you, that you can endure the evil, knowing that God could very well use the evil in your life right now to bring about something in the future that is good, that is redeeming. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you right now. Some of us wandering away from you. Some of us questioning you. Some of us just kind of existing. God, we, we know you are real whether or not we believe it. Just as the sun is real, whether or not we acknowledge is its existence. So Lord, we don't ask that you become more real. You are real and you do love us, but we ask that you melt our hearts of stone. We ask that you melt our hearts of unbelief. God, we know that you truly love each and every one of us, even in the face of evil. I pray that small groups would be a time where we can truly uh, share the burdens of our hearts maybe truly be honest with 
our friends, our peers, that they don't just become acquaintances, but they become brothers and sisters who walk with us in the trenches of battle in life. God, I pray for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.